What if your life was born into hardship and struggle? What if the hardship you met as you entered the world wasn't going to be the worst your life would see? What if your life was destined to be a series of heartbreaking events, each of which more devastating on your soul than the last? What if all of these events were entirely out of your control and regardless of the choices you made in your life, all roads would lead to tragedy? Would you let the darkness chasing you become all-consuming and devour your life and spirit? Or would you face the darkness head-on, look at it in the eye and use it as a catalyst for change? Well, it is the life of a Cork woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In 1837, on the north side of Cork City, a woman was born. Her name, Mary Harris. Mary's parents were poor tenant farmers, paying high rents on their land, living in extreme poverty and having little or nothing to eat on a daily basis. Their only regular food, potatoes. The potatoes brought to Ireland via Yall from the Americas by Sir Walter Raleigh. The reason for the high potato diet was a genetically modified potato that was made available to the poor Irish known as the lumper potato. This could be mass produced and grown in very poor soil so it was perfect for small poor farms which Ireland had an abundance of. Laws created by the British establishment in Ireland at the time made it very difficult for the Irish to have any access to food outside of what they could grow themselves. The high rents and high taxes would always keep them under the thumb of debt. Ireland was so poor at the time, one British journalist seeking new tourism spots for wealthy British stated, the third world is an unrealistic paradise for the people of Ireland. Mary and her parents struggled along as best they could for as long as they could. Then, as Mary turned just eight years old and Gortamore began to make itself comfortable on the Emerald Isle, the Great Famine had arrived. Given the strict laws against Catholics at the time, the Irish were only entitled to eat the potato. All other food was transported off the island to feed those in Britain and its colonies. Over a million people would leave the island and over another million would perish due to starvation. Cannibalism out of necessity took place with the flesh of the dead being some families only access to food. The people however never turned on each other only those already dead were eaten. Mainly it was the calf muscles which were the only body parts taken. The harp was buried deep beneath the crown.
Two years of hardship passed and when Mary's family could save just about enough, they boarded the coffin ship and left their home in Cork, never to return again, and headed to Canada. Here, starvation was no longer their daily issue. Instead, they had to face another challenge from home. Discrimination and racism. Being immigrants, they were seen as the lowest of the low classes. Being Catholic put them a step lower down in this social group. And being Irish placed them on a lower tier again. Apart from the availability of food due to the kindness of the other Irish working to look after each other, life had not really improved for Mary and her family. She received an education in Toronto, a city whose population grew by 75% due to the influx of Irish during the famine years. The family had to pay $1 per week for their child to be educated. When the money ran out, so did Mary's education. She did not graduate due to not being able to afford her schooling. She did, however, show that she was highly intelligent and it was this which gained her a teaching position in a convent in Monroe, Michigan. Thirteen years after leaving Ireland, maybe now things were going to begin to turn around for Mary. She earned $8 per week but found the convent a very depressing place which was causing hardship for the students. She found it very hard to go there on a daily basis so when she gained enough experience she moved to Chicago and then on to Memphis. It was in Memphis she met the love of her life, George Jones. George was a member and organizer of the National Union of Iron Molders. George was making a very good living for himself and they decided together that Mary would take an early retirement and become a housekeeper and look after their four children. Three wonderful girls and a boy to be proud of. Mary's life felt as if it was on the up. She had been through her struggle and now she had a family she could be proud of, a husband she loved and an abundance of everything she needed or was ever going to need. Six years after marrying George and riding on the wings of joy, the shadow of darkness visited Mary once again. Over a 12-month period, she watched helpless as each of their four children died of yellow fever. George was taken by it too. Mary was left alone with nowhere to turn and nowhere to go. The day before George died was the last day in Mary's life where she would wear anything but the colour black. After the loss of her family, Mary ventured to Chicago and started her own dressmaking and mending business. She quickly rose to fame in the city for her skill and wit. She was also known to be very abrasive against those who challenged her. 
She was also very famous for being foul-mouthed, something unbefitting for a lady at the time. Her primary clients were the upper-class women of Chicago. Whilst she played the role of the friendly business owner, she detested these women for the way they talked of their staff, or slaves as Mary saw it, and how they treated anyone of the lower classes. Once again, the future was looking bright and prosperous for Mary. Once again, Mary's lifelong companion visited her and tragedy struck again. In 1871, four years after the death of her family and her life now rebuilt, the Great Chicago Fire burnt Mary's shop, home and all her belongings to the ground. She was left with absolutely nothing. Like many others in the city, Mary set out to help to rebuild the city in any way she could. This eventually led her to joining the Knights of Labour, a sort of trade union created to giving the working man better conditions. Having seen how the upper classes were treating the workers first hand, she was very vocal in the organisation and went on to organise a series of strikes. These initially failed to have any great impact on the workers' rights and often led to police shooting at and killing the strikers. Mary took each of the deaths deeply to heart, seeing it as they were just doing what she had asked them to do, and it had led to their deaths. It was due to the deaths occurring, and on one occasion a bomb being thrown at the strikers, that the Knights of Labour began to lose any power it had built up, even amongst its own members. The friends Mary had made during her time with the organisation eventually led her to leaving the organisation herself and joining the United Mine Workers, a trade union for those working in the mines. Again here she quickly rose to the top and organised strikes and protests against the hardships forced on the miners. Learning from previous mistakes, she started to see great results for the workers and they were beginning to get better pay due to Mary's efforts. She is reported to having organised over 200 strikes and leading them all from the front lines, standing at just 5 feet tall and in her 60s. The workers and Mary against the police and the government never shying from a fight. Due to the love the workers had for her, they called her Mother Jones, and she called them her boys. The authorities, however, had a different name for her, as a senator dubbed her the most dangerous woman in America. He said, this is the kind of woman who comes into an area where peace and prosperity reigns, and with the click of a finger, convinces 20,000 contented men to down tools and leave. When asked, where does she live now that her home had burnt down? She replied, I have no home except for where there is struggle. In 1891, to 
Pennsylvania silk mill workers went on strike. Many of them were young women who wanted to be paid adult wages. At the time, one-sixth of American children under the age of 16 were working in full-time labour roles. Mother Jones was brought in to help encourage the unity among the strikers. To do so, she organised the wives of workers to beat pots and pans and shout join the union to those not already members. In speeches to crowds and in interviews with national newspapers, she stated that this strike was because the girls working in the mills were being robbed of a living, the children were being robbed of a childhood, and the rich were doing this to further their own lives and use the earnings of the poor to send their own children to expensive fee-paying schools. There were laws at the time against children working, but these were not being enforced by the authorities as they all had a vested interest in the profits of the businesses. This infuriated Mary. Eventually, the women of the mills gained a better pay, but children did not receive any rights with the authorities stating that they were too young to be working there, so they could not change the laws to help them. In 1903, Mary organised the Children's Crusade. This was a 92-mile march from Kensington, Philadelphia to Oyster Bay, New York, the home of then-President Theodore Roosevelt. As they marched, Mary noticed just how many children were missing fingers, had breathing issues or missing entire limbs. The children marching with Mary were far younger than 16, some as young as four. Their mothers had lied about their ages, as when the fathers got similar injuries and could not work anymore, the children were sent to take their place and bring in some form of a living. The pay for 70 hours a week was the equivalent of $12 per week in modern money. Journalists met with the marching brigade along the way and Mary furiously questioned them. Why had they not highlighted this story before? Why were they acting as pawns for the authorities? When she was told that the papers were not allowed to publish the facts of the children's conditions because of the stock high up people had in the businesses, Mary furiously shouted at them, Well, I've got stock in these little children and I'll arrange a little publicity. Though the president refused to meet with them when they reached his door, the march brought the rights movement to a national audience and support grew for them. After years of striking and fighting alongside the workers, now in her 70s, Mary first met James Connolly in 1910 after she gave a speech on how human rights should be the currency a nation holds above all else. Connolly was living in America at the time and would go on to be an Irish freedom fighter and trade union leader. It was the profound impact this chance meeting had on Connolly that led him to return home, meet with James Larkin and Jack White and begin the Dublin lockout.
Scalefadigar. The Dublin lockout took place from August 1913 to January 1914. It was a movement by the trade unions in Ireland to gain better rights for the workers of Ireland. It took place in Dublin city and saw 20,000 workers down tools across 300 different businesses. Dublin in the early 1900s had some of the worst slums in Europe. So bad that the 15 houses on Henrietta Street on the north side of Dublin city were home to 835 people. So bad were the conditions that one family contacted their landlord eight months after moving in to say that they had not seen the family upstairs in the four-room building, only to then find out that the rooms upstairs were already being rented out by themselves as part of their deal. They had assumed that only two rooms were to be used by them downstairs as this would have been the norm. The infant mortality rate in the city was the highest in Europe. Many diseases made Dublin their home and caused many deaths amongst the poor. So bad were the conditions that Ireland had the highest rate of TB-related deaths in Europe. Then came Larkin, a man born to famine survivors who had left for Liverpool. He worked on the side of the workers. He organised multiple strikes after witnessing one of Dublin's major businesses sue the family of a worker who had been pulled into a machine and killed for the lack of earnings whilst they cleaned his remains out of the gears. While Larkin worked tirelessly for workers' rights, another child of famine survivors also rose to help the workers. Edinburgh-born James Connolly, the man inspired by Mother Jones. The two men, with others, worked on what was called the Kiddies Scheme, a movement to try and feed the starving children of Dublin. They sought for the British-owned businesses to donate food to the cause, but this was blocked by the church, who saw it as the same thing as taking the soup, something the British did to the Irish during the famine. This meant you took the food from the British authorities on the condition you became Protestant, changed your Celtic name to an Anglo one, and denounced all things Irish. This is one of the main reasons why today you see some Irish surnames with an O at the start while the same name also exists without the O, an indication the family accepted the soup. Just to note, this isn't always true in the case of Irish Americans who would have lost the O when they landed in Staten Island as they were automatically anglicised and some had to apply to get the O back. The largest employer in Dublin during 1913 and the biggest exporter refused to improve rights in any way for its workers and rejected the advances of Larkin and Connolly. At the same time, they were very pro-British and anti-Irish revolution. They sacked anyone associated with the movement. As the movement grew, some of those high up were taken and tortured by police, sometimes to death. After eight months of staying at home in the hope of better working conditions and starving, the workers left the strike and the lockout had failed. 
The seeds, however, which would lead to the 1916 Rising had been set. That's a story for another day. Without Mother Jones meeting Connolly, it may never have started and become the fuse to begin the Irish Revolution. Mary continued to dedicate her life to improving the lives of others. During the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike of 1912 in West Virginia, Mary was brought in. She continued to speak for and organize the unions. This was despite a shooting war between the miners and the mine owners private army. Martial law was declared and Mary was brought before a military court charged with conspiracy to commit murder. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison at the age of 75, destined to spend the remainder of her life in a cell. Whilst on trial, she also contracted pneumonia, a dangerous bout of it. After 85 days in prison, she was released. Her message had finally reached the top of political society as Indiana Senator John Kearns listened to her message and led an investigation into the miners' conditions. Whilst Mary had finally seen a great joy in her life, as was the trend, she once again felt a great darkness. 1,200 of her boys were fired on in the Ludlow Massacre when the Colorado National Guard opened fire on miners and their families in response to the rights they were gaining as a result of Mary's work. She took this again to heart and demanded a meeting with the owner of the mine, John D. Rockefeller, suspecting he had something to do with what had happened. Their meeting led to the long-sought reforms for the miners' rights. Mary Jones died in Silver Spring, Maryland in 1930. At her wishes, she was buried with the miners who had been killed in the battles for their rights, the ones she called her boys. On October 11, 1936, on what was known as Miners' Day, 50,000 people stood by her grave. The day has since become known as Mother Jones' Day. In 1984, Mary was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanam Dum, Gurav Mahagut, Slonanish.